Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through 29 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere, uh, somewhere near you. Uh, so you could check it out on page 1029. Um, I really have, as sobering as it has been, I think at, at points in this book, I really am enjoying um, just a, a glimpse of Jesus that we don't normally get, you know. I mean, I think there's a real temptation to um, have a, a narrow view of who Jesus is, and uh, most of the time, um, it's one that you might find on a felt board um, in a Sunday school class, or it might be a, some obscure painting that you might find. But what we see in the book of Revelation is a very beautiful, powerful picture of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to see that uh, play out at the church at Thyatira this morning. So before we jump in, I want to ask you this question. So if you had to think back, I'm a movie guy, so if you had to think back in the last 30 years... Uh, what's the greatest love story that you've seen on screen? You can go ahead and... Forrest Gump. Gump. All right, I like it. I like it. All right. Somebody's close. All right, anybody else want to take a shot? I mean, this is going to be my opinion, but this is a movie. You can think back. This is a movie that that turned 30 this year. For the love of the game. All right, anybody else want to take another shot? Braveheart. Yes. No. Space Jam. Princess Bride. The All right. If I had a bookstore, I would give you a free book. Yes, The Princess Bride turns 30 this year. How many of you are familiar with The Princess Bride? All right. Um, Those of you that are not familiar with The Princess Bride, point of discipleship this week, go and watch (laughs) The Princess Bride. Um, I would say without a doubt uh, that the story of Wesley and Buttercup, um, as cheesy as it is, is uh, something that I think that we can learn a lot about. Um, it's not only, the, I would say, one of the greatest love stories, but it's probably one of the most quotable movies over the last 30 years. So I may or may not, when someone questions my wisdom in my, my household, I may whisper underneath my breath, inconceivable, <laughs> right? I, I may or may not, when I face a difficult um, situation, say, my name is Indigo Matoya. You murdered my father, prepare to die. Yeah, like I, uh, some of those things I do often, and my son is correcting me because he knows I don't always get movie quotes correctly, but I love that movie for a lot of reasons. Um, It's great because of the diversity, I think, that exists in the movie. I mean, it's got action, it's got comedy, it's got Billy Crystal, uh, it's got WWE star, Andre the Giant, who's no longer with us. So, I mean, that's just rest in peace, right? I mean, it's just, it's an amazing film. Um, And it's the story of Wesley and Buttercup and how he rescues her from Prince Humperdinck. And there are sword fights and duels and all kinds of interesting things. And um, there's just really no links that Wesley will not go to to rescue the love of his life. And we kind of get that when you think about a movie like The Princess Bride. But it makes me question, what, what links would Jesus go to for his bride, right? Is there really any sacrifice that is too great? I mean, 
Most of us, if we're honest, when we think about Jesus' romance for us, and we look at the book of Revelation, we're described as the bride of Christ. We almost think that um, that's just something that's far off, that's going to happen one day, and it's going to be a great surprise. But it actually is something that Jesus wants us to kind of get ready for and to prepare ourselves for. And um, part of the reason I share that story is this, this morning's passage is one of the most severe warnings in all of Scripture, right? Um, Most of us, uh, we're not drawn to passages that warn us, but this is about Jesus speaking to us in love to prepare our hearts to be with him one day. He's not indifferent about how we live our lives, and he's not indifferent to the um, idea of how we're going to live out our lives to be with him one day. He loves his people enough to warn them about danger. He loves his people enough to exhort them and to plead with them. And in particular, we're going to look at the the reality of sexual immorality today. Um, And we're not primarily going to focus on the sins that are out there in the culture. We're going to focus on the things that are inside of us. And we're going to focus on um, a picture of Jesus that's big enough to liberate us and to conquer the sin that clings so closely to so many of us. And so, um, yeah, with with appropriate sobriety, these are the most important words that are going to be spoken here today. If you have a red letter edition, this is Jesus speaking. You may not have a category for Jesus speaking like this, but this is his very word. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Yeah, you got it. And it's okay to laugh even when I'm reading God's Word. And is teaching, a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But... To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. 
even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Just ask that you would pray. And I want you to pray. Pray for you, but I need you to pray for me. Um, it's been a trying week, not only with the weightiness of this passage, but just trusting God personally in my own life. So I, I just ask that you would pray for me in this moment, um, because uh, it'd be really easy for this to go a lot of different ways that aren't helpful, and I want this to produce life in us. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you that you love us enough to warn us of danger. I pray that just in these moments that you would be the one that searches minds and hearts, that you would comfort those that are being faithful and fighting, and that you would disturb those that are comfortable, that you would save marriages here today, that you would set people free from the power of sexual immorality. I pray that you would allow us to do this not just out of fear, but out of love that casts out fear. So I pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate your word. I pray that you would help me to be faithful to this text. Help me not to round off any corners that you've made sharp and a stumbling block. I pray that you help me to proclaim this word to the people that I love the most. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot going wrong inside of this church, but I I don't want to rush too quickly beyond the point that Jesus commends some things. So as we look at this passage, we're going to answer some questions out loud together. Um, And the first one that we're going to look at this morning is, what does Jesus actually commend about this church? And what can we learn from this church? What does Jesus commend? Look at verse 9. It says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus, before he begins to warn a certain section of this church, he begins to commend them, right? I mean, you'll remember back to the church at Ephesus. Um, They had forgotten their first love. Their works had fallen off. This church was a church that was passionate about good works. There was a zeal that had been birthed in their hearts for good works. That's a a word that we don't use a lot anymore. But if you look at Titus chapter 2, when grace comes in the person of Jesus, it begins to produce not not a passivity, not a laxity, but it begins to produce this real zeal for good works. And most of the time in the book of Revelation and the rest of Scripture, when you look at this idea of good works, it's good works towards the world. Like, this is a group of people that are passionate about living out their faith, right? They're not just paying lip service um, as a church. They are allowing the good news of Jesus and the fact that he came into the world to forgive them of their sins, that he sent the Holy Spirit to empower them, that all of that, like he did that so that they would live and walk in good works, right? So zeal, um, like I said, is not something that we use a lot, um, but it's something I think that's pretty easy to demonstrate. It's all, uh, it's college football season for everyone here, so zeal, um, it just depends on who you're a fan of. Maybe at an all-time high right now. 
Um, and, and I could describe the difference between zeal um, and maybe passivity like this. Okay, there's some people that are college football fans and, um, you know, they might see the score and they might smile um, if their team won uh, on Saturday. Then there's a, another level where there's a, a, a group of people that might watch the game if it doesn't interfere with any of their other activities, right? And then you continue on that scale. Then there's people um, that rearrange their lives around watching certain football games. Um, they probably own some gear. I see some gear out there this morning, right? Um, but then there's this whole other level of fan that this, this is what zeal looks like. Um, these are the people that get up on game day, and they said, you know what, a jersey or a t-shirt is not enough for me, right? They watched a lot of Braveheart as a kid, and they're like, I am going to paint my body, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to represent my team. Um, And just, I don't know, I had this picture that popped up right here. That is our newest elder right there, uh, Trenton Hoggards from his college days. Um, Zeal. So, if you ever wonder what that looks like, yeah, thank you so much. Zeal is, <laughs> yeah, and it hasn't changed. Um, I mean, we, we, we've, we've asked him to maybe tone it down a little bit. Not as much pink, you know, but I, I appreciate your zeal. So that's what this church, right, is being commended for. I mean, they are all in, right? They're not just wearing the t-shirt. They're painting their bodies. They are out, and they are about um, in it's easy to start well, right? I mean, with this love and this idea that we've received the gospel, but it, it's, it's quite another thing. There, there comes a point in time, especially um, if you're approaching my age or you are older, where zeal begins to wane, where you're not passionate about good works increasing, and you begin to just kind of settle in uh, and become comfortable and you think, well, that's something that people younger than me do, or that's something that I'll do in another season when, you know, I get older and I have more time and more margin. Um, but a healthy doctrine of grace on the ground for us as a group of people looks like um, we're passionate about demonstrating the good news that we've received from Jesus. Dallas Willard is helpful on this. He says, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those that have been set on fire by the grace of God. Paul, who perhaps understood grace better than any other mere human being, looked back at what had happened to him and said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So grace produces movement and action, and this church is living that out, and Jesus commends that. This is preserved in Scripture to encourage us to continue to live a life and see Jesus in such a way that it produces zeal. All right, now what's the next question we're going to look at? Our second question is, what went wrong, right? Because this is a sobering passage. Look at verses 20 through 23. Some of the harshest words in all of Scripture. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is 
teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So, one thing I think we have to do in these situations when we come across things that surprise us and shock us is not look for easy ways to explain them away. Warnings are meant to function as warnings. They're meant for the people of God to take inventory. This isn't like the user agreement that you have when you get a new operating system on your phone that you just scroll through and you check, yeah, I agree. Like this is something where God, through his word, through the power of his spirit, says, hey, I want everybody inside of the church, I want all the churches to hear this message that sexual immorality is dangerous and it is deadly and it will produce Not life that it promises, but it will produce death. Now, this passage, this is what it's hard. It's it's for people that are currently seeking to redefine God's word to accommodate their lifestyle. This is for people not that are struggling and fighting within community and with the gospel, like against sexual immorality and continue to fall. This is about a group of people that have grown calloused and hard. This is about a group of people who have a heart of stone and Jesus wants to use this passage to turn it into a heart of flesh. But it also helps us to see how seriously Jesus takes sexual immorality. I mean, this is a holiness passage, right? That's a word you don't hear a whole lot about. And so... um, Primarily the reason the church has kind of gone away from the idea of holiness is because for years, like, people have just said, hey, these are the things that you don't do. Like, holiness is primarily this negative things, sins that you avoid, right? So that's, that's what it is. This passage does say avoid sexual immorality, but it also... Holiness, as you look at the entirety of Scripture, is about being set apart for Jesus because he has something completely different and completely better for his people, right? There's something better for the people of God than looking at pornography, right? There's something better for the people of God than just sleeping around with boyfriends or girlfriends or hooking up. There's something better for the people of God, and it's satisfaction and life that comes from Jesus himself. Now, Jesus loves his bride. I mean, this is how Jesus responds. I mean, I'll use a southern analogy. When a fox gets in the hen house, right? He's not passive about that. If you are a father and there was a young man that was sneaking in your daughter's bedroom, um, I don't think that you would kindly greet him. I mean, there are times when Jesus lays down the gauntlet and he says, listen, I want you to hear this. This is deadly and I am warning you. There is a person that is referred to as Jezebel. I don't think that's her real name. Um, This name has never been on the top of any baby name list, by the way. (laughs) Jezebel comes from the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 16. She is an Old Testament. Um, She was married to King Ahab, and she was hunting down the prophet Elijah. She was seeking to put him to death. 
Um, basically, what was going on probably with this woman, Jezebel, it's in this culture, it was a Greek culture, they begin to undergo this process of thinking called dualism, where they said, basically, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Like, as long as your heart belongs to Jesus, right, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Now, for us, when we hear words like this, we're surprised because Jesus is so merciful. We're surprised at judgment, right? But this judgment is about the purity inside the church. Like, there's something about when sexual immorality takes hold of a group of people, they're not able to function as the people of God. So he's saying, hey, I, I want to come in, and I'm going to give you a stern warning. Now, I don't know if the, the death of children is actually a physical death, or if this is just, hey, this strain of teaching and these people are going to be put outside of the church. It, it's not totally clear to anyone. But regardless of all those things, we need to listen to this warning. As the book of Revelation kind of unfolds, um, this person Jezebel is kind of a, a manifestation of the beast and the false prophet. And you're going to get into the, the false church that's called Babylon the Great. It's the fake trinity that tries to replicate who God is. And how they try to lure in the people of God is with money, it's with sex, and with, it's with power. Those are the lies that the false trinity promises to the people of God. So Jesus is waging war here. You'll see about the deep things of Satan. Jesus is waging war against Satan through the sexual immorality of his people. Now, the church at Thyatira, this was the least impressive city of any of the places that Jesus wrote a letter to. Thyatira was a a blue-collar town. It was filled with tradesmen. Um, People made their money um, primarily by metalworking. A lot of them would be making idols that would go inside of the temples that were there. So this group of people were saved. They were called out of that world. But it would have been almost impossible for them to break off um, living life inside that culture, doing business inside of that culture without continuing to go to these temples where people worshipped by having sex with prostitutes. That would have been impossible for them. So what's going on inside of this church? It's not just sexual immorality for sexual immorality's sake. It's a group of people that need cultural significance and power given to them. So they're willing to sacrifice their sexuality and their being before God because they crave cultural acceptance and cultural power. Now, primarily, like, Today, like if if this was going to play out, like on the left, right, people want to redefine what sexuality before God means. On the right, it looks like sacrificing Christian values for the sake of political expediency. The people of God have always struggled with how do we relate to culture? What will we sacrifice to have power and influence inside of the world? Fundamentally, this church made peace with things that they should have made war with, right? There's some things that even the people of God, armed with the good news of Jesus, simply cannot tolerate. So tolerance 
was a big issue for this church. They tolerated this false teaching because it allowed them to function well inside of society. Now, historically, tolerance has meant civility, right? How we respond to people that differ from us. But over really the last 25 years or so, tolerance has been redefined to be For you to be a tolerant person, this is the defining value of Western civilization, someone that calls themselves progressive. It's tolerance means acceptance. If I'm going to tolerate you, that means I'm going to accept you. That means I accept everything about you. Tim Keller says this, and I think it's helpful. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. So historically, like when the church speaks on topics of sexuality. You get soapbox Christians who put up their little platform and they wag their finger at the world and say, look at those bad people out there. Jesus kindly wants to address people like that and say, don't you dare. I want to address the sexual immorality that lives inside of here. So this is not about the culture. This is about sexual immorality inside the church. So, next thing we're going to look at, what is the big deal with sexual immorality? What's the big deal with sexual immorality? The Greek word for sexual immorality, and I'm not trying to show off, but it's an important one, is porneia. It means all forms of sex and sexuality that is outside of God's design for husbands and wives inside the context of marriage. So this includes pornography for married people or single people, sleeping together before marriage, friends with benefits, oral sex, all of those things fall under the category of porneia if it's not inside the context of marriage. Now, I'm not saying that this is unredeemable, but I am saying that there are some real Problems that exist when we accept and tolerate sexual immorality, it distorts, it destroys, and it produces death. It promises sexual freedom and it produces sexual bondage. It desensitizes us to the beauty of God's gift of sexuality. So we don't want to just be a group of people that primarily stay away from the negative. This is about allowing us to be the people of God and pursuing that which is beautiful that God has intended. Now, the definition of this word has certainly undergone a Jezebel-type indictment inside the church where people have sought to redefine this to be something that it's not. Um, So I just want to talk about what are some ways that I think that we can avoid sexual immorality. And the first one I think that is the obvious one is pornography. Pornography is not primarily a man's issue. It is a human issue. It is not a victimless sin. Statistics say that at age 11, most children are exposed to their first views of pornography. I'm a parent, and I have three that have been that age, and that bears itself out. So, Whether they hear about it here, which I'm glad parents have allowed their children, or they are going to hear from it from the world, we want to realize the reality of pornography and the damage that it can do. Now, 
is I'm not like a negative stats guy, but I think some of these like need to sober us. Um, statistics say 60 to 70 percent of people inside the church somewhat regularly view pornography. Now, even if we are above the curve, that still is a vast majority of us. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. Pornography use, um, 40% of sex addicts lose their spouse. 58% uh, incur significant financial losses, and about a third end up losing their jobs. So enough is never enough. It continues. 68% of divorce cases involve one party meeting a new party over the internet, where 56% involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. So pornography in and of itself is deadly. It tears marriages apart both before marriage and outside of marriage by creating unrealistic expectations inside of marriage. So many wives labor under this reality of husbands that have an insatiable appetite that's fueled by pornography and they constantly are made to measure themselves by what their husbands have viewed right women then start to look for their significance and their value and how they look and measure themselves against other people i said it's not a victimless sin because of sex trafficking right every and this is what's so horrible inside the church that we have 60 to 70 percent of people in the church at large that would say I somewhat frequently view pornography and then can be passionate about f- like seeing people freed from sex trafficking on the other hand it's such a contradiction right every time that someone clicks on pornography the demand grows and most of the victims come from poor countries around the world where they're promised a better life and they end up in the sex trade, right? I mean, this is serious and it should be sobering. Statistics and sad stories are not enough to change our heart. We're going to get to the power to change. But we have to know that the sexual immorality that exists inside the church, I want this to be a safe place where people don't feel shame and they can fight. But we have to fight as the people of God. Russell Brands, who is the former husband of Katy Perry, uh, so that might be familiar to some of you. Uh, and in my household, he's more uh, famously known as Dr. Nefario in Despicable Me. Um, he's become an outspoken advocate against pornography. I came across this in Scott Saul's book, Befriend. He said this. This is Russell Brand, who's not a Christian at all. He said, Our attitudes towards sex have become warped and perverted and have deviated from its true function as an expression of love and as a means for procreation. Because of our acculturation, the way we've designed it and expressed it has become really, really confused. I heard a quote from a priest that said, Pornography is not a problem because it shows too much, but because it shows too little. I think what he's saying is that pornography reduces the spectacle of sex to a kind of abstracted physical act. And then he goes on to say that porn is a drug. It's not good for him. It represents voyeurism, obsession with looking at women, objectification, and fear of true intimacy. Pornography is not something I'd like. 
It's something that I've not been able to make a long-term commitment to not looking at. And it's affecting my ability to relate to women, to relate to myself, my own sexuality, and my own spirituality. So the key phrase there is, pornography is dangerous, not because it shows too much, but because it shows too little. What God has designed, and this is the positive effects of, of holiness, is he has designed the gift of sex. The Old Testament word for it is ikad. It means being fused together at the deepest possible level. It's not just a physical act. It is a spiritual one, right? It takes us back to the garden. We looked at this at the beginning of the year where we can be naked and unashamed. I want all the teenagers to hear sex is a good gift from God. It is not something that's dirty or gross, but it is a gift that we have to steward well. It is a gift that in and of itself um, is dangerous if we exercise it outside of God's boundaries. Tim Keller says this, because sex is the most delightful and also the most dangerous of all human capacities. It is a transcendent, otherworldly experience. Sex works a lot like fire. Though it can warm and purify, if it's not properly contained and handled with care, it can burn, scar, infect, and destroy. And there's not a person in this room, whether directly through your own actions or the actions of someone else, has not been affected by sexual immorality, right? We live in a culture that worships sex as God, right? I mean, we grow immune to it over and over again, but it distorts God's good gift and makes us settle for a cheap imitation. This isn't about merely biology. This is about submitting our sexuality to God and saying we as the people of God want to be set apart for your purposes. And his purposes are good, right? All the married couples can say amen, right? Sex is good, right? That, that, there should be lots of amens on that one, right? I mean, this is a good gift from God for his people, right? Now, I just want to talk a little bit about sex outside of marriage, and then we're going to move on to the good news of the gospel. This was about a church that was trying to find their significance in something other than Jesus, and so they were willing to compromise their sexuality. So I want to, I want to speak to all the women that are dating in this audience. You do not have to give away your body to show that you're significant, to show that you're noticed, to be loved. You are loved by the God of the universe. I'm not talking about a couple that stumbles, that's trying to pursue holiness, but a man that will tell you that you don't have to listen to Jesus' ways and his teachings on sexuality is a dangerous man, right? Now, I trust that for most in here that, that maybe they just don't understand that to be the truth and the reality of, of how God has designed things. So we take this passage as a warning and we begin to try to live life accordingly. So I know that's heavy and that's real, but what's the hope that this passage reveals? Look at verses 24 through 28. But, right, this isn't for people that are hard-hearted, for those that aren't hard-hearted, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, 
who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. So Jesus knows the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, now, as stern of a warning as this is to this church, there's even better news for this church. He says, All the love, all the power, all the significance that you crave and that you're willing to give your body away from, all that you desire is now yours in Jesus, right? You are going to rule over the nations. Jesus' victory will become your victory. And it's not some um, mealy-mouthed victory. It is as when an iron rod breaks a clay pot, right? I mean, he's not going to be taken off of his throne. His victory over pornography and sexual immorality is complete and it is total and it is ours as the people of God. He is powerful, right? I I think that we can grow in faith as the people of God that there is real power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can propel holiness inside the people of God, right? This isn't something that we have to accept, right? Just because that's the culture that we live in. I promise you Thyatira was a much more sexually charged culture than we live in. Right, even with the invention of the iPhone. This is the promise. He says, You will receive the morning star. You can look at Revelation chapter 22. The morning star is Jesus himself. You're going to inherit everything. It says in the book of Ephesians that right now we are seated with Jesus inside of heavenly places. We are already experiencing the victory of Jesus now. And so this is to to promise us that one day that our sin will be dealt with finally and fully and we will be with him forever. But it also is to cause us to long, right, for that day when we will be rid of the sin that Clings so closely. And, and the, way that this, the way that this begins to lose its power is through the gift of community, right? Where, I'm not saying, we don't want to turn this into where this becomes everybody learns their deepest, darkest secrets about everyone, but we all have to have someone that we can tap on the shoulder and say, I need you to pray for me. Like, this is what's taking over me. This is what... <laughs> This is what I'm being tempted with, or these are the lies that I'm believing, and receive help and receive victory. I mean, I have to have that in my own life. Like, we all need someone to say, like, I'm going to walk with you, right? I'm going to fight with you. We're not going to give in to this. So we want to realize that all the love, power, and influence that we desire is ours in Jesus Christ. You don't have to prove your love to another person. He's already, he's already given his love freely to us. And, and this, this is the promise if, if you have experienced the devastation of sexual immorality. His love makes the unlovely lovely. Right? There's not anyone in this room that is pure on their own. There's not anyone that's righteous on their own. So this is to make us long to be further clothed with the good news of Jesus, right? He takes our defilement, he takes it, that's a song that we sang, places it on Jesus and we get to receive the forgiveness of sins, right? 
These aren't theoretical sins. These are real sins that cling closely to us. So we want to run to Jesus with fresh faith. All right, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond to Jesus. Father, thank you for your great love for us. I pray that your victory, your authority, your power would be manifest in these moments. I pray that we would set apart ourselves as the bride, that we would long to be spotless and holy before you. I pray that you would help us to run away from sexual immorality and run towards um, the good news of Jesus. I pray that you would give those that are afraid, that you would give them friendships. I pray those that are experiencing shame that's from the enemy, that you would lift it. I pray that you would send the Spirit um, to empower us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.